0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I am still on the road this week. This week, I'm in Hawaii. Yes, I know the sacrifices I make for the greater cause. (laughs) Someone has to do it. Uh, But specifically, I'm on the island of Oahu, working with a school on some assessment design and some assessment planning. We're doing some small group sessions where we roll up our sleeves and we develop an assessment plan alongside that unit plan to make sure that the assessments are planned and purposeful in advance of instruction, as we always talk about. I'm Very excited for the work legitimately, but yes, I am also thrilled and grateful to have a week in Hawaii in January, no question about it. So it's four days worth of work plus some online work. I might've tacked on uh, some days, some extra days on the front end and the back end before heading back to uh, the mainland. As always, thanks for tuning in this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. Of course, I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Dr. Monica Burns. Monica is a former New York City public school teacher who is now an ed tech expert, and that is exactly what the focus of our conversation is going to be. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to highlight for you one simple question you can use to audit your assessment practices and know whether or not it's something you should continue to utilize. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Monica Burns is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by saying that I've had just about enough of the fluff. Now, I'm aware that this is going to come across a little bit as the old man yelling at clouds kind of situation, but I don't care, honestly, because I've had it. There is just way too much educational fluff out there, and we need to do something about it. Now... I'm intentionally not going to specifically call anyone out or anything out because to do so would be to leave so many others out of that conversation. Like, why should I pick on the one person or the one thing when so many could be included in that conversation? And I'm not sure we can do anything to stop the fluff creators. So calling them out specifically would be unnecessarily confrontational. So I think the answer is to stop giving the fluff so much oxygen. We have to be better consumers of edu-content, if you will. Now, I know that's a generalization, as many of you likely are thoughtful consumers, and if you are, great, then do what you can to influence your colleagues. The issue I have is not with the fluff itself. Look, we know education is a challenging profession and has likely never been more stressful than ever, but so, so, the, so the idea that we have some fun, that we see the lighter side, that we let off some steam, I'm all about that. That's all good. We need that because we can't take this job seriously 24-7, 365 days a year. My issue is when the fluff is passed off as serious education content. And the real issue is that there are many things that sound good and feel good that either have little support in the research or don't have any support in the research at all. It gets even worse when the fluffy content is accompanied by a cute little graphic or picture. Again, graphics, pics, etc., all fine. But when it's clear it's all being manufactured for attention on social media and is more akin to clickbait, then I feel... Actually, I feel disappointed more than anything. Yes, it makes me feel frustrated and maybe a little angry at times if I'm being completely honest... But disappointment is what I feel the most. I'm disappointed that we fall for it. I'm disappointed with our profession that we're drawn to this kind of fluff. I'm disappointed at how often I hear people say, give me something quick and easy. Sorry, I can't do that. This work is challenging. We all know it. The concept of quick and easy usually falls short of what is necessary to help students reach high levels of intellectual performance. Now, within the context of some strategies, yes, sure, we can be more efficient and find maybe some quicker ways to implement certain strategies. Again, I'm all about efficiency. But the give me the quick and easy makes us susceptible to falling for some of this fluff. Look, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm... At this point, too old school, and 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 maybe I'm the one that needs the mindset correction. I don't know, I don't think so. But self-awareness is never any of our strong suits, right? <laughs> Remember when we talked about introspection illusion last spring? I mean, you look, maybe I'm too serious, but I feel like this work is serious, that we should take it seriously, and demand more from ourselves. Substance matters, and so does research. Now, I'm not saying we have to have an unhealthy adherence to the orthodoxy of what the educational research says, but I do think it matters a lot. And I remember once being in a workshop, and a woman raised her hand after making it clear non verbally she was growing uncomfortable with the assessment research I was sharing, and she made the following statement to me She says, I don't care what the research says, I've been doing my own research during my 23 years of teaching. No, you haven't. And yes, I said that to her. (laughs) Look, I said it with a little more finesse, but I did say it. I didn't want to discredit her or I don't want to discredit anyone else's experience, but your experience is not necessarily generalizable. Experience does count, but let's not start calling our experience research. Did you use any randomized control groups during those 23 years? Yeah, didn't think so. Now, research isn't ironclad, and as many of you have heard me say before, the research gives us the most favorable course of action given the largest numbers of students. That's typically how I talk about the research, but it's not absolute. That's where your experience comes in. When utilizing effective research-supported practices, there will always be contextual nuances that we need to shape, no doubt. But to say your experience is research is the height of ego and arrogance. Honestly, sorry, it just is. Another example, when you write a serious book asserting an instructional or assessment or feedback or grading practice without any citations, that's an issue. Either there aren't any, which is a problem, or there are and you didn't cite any. That's a problem. And maybe even going so far as passing off all of your assertions as your own thoughts. That's a major problem. Look, the fluff isn't going anywhere. And in fact, I think it's only going to get worse. With the emergence of TikTok and, and the obsession people have with going viral, I, I don't think this is going away. The disappointing part for me is that what goes viral is often the fluff. And I just wonder sometimes, what are we doing? What are we doing? Again, I'm not saying we should take ourselves too seriously and not have an outlet for fun. Fluff is fine, as long as we all know it's fluff. Okay, it's the crossover that bothers me. The fluff that gets passed off as serious stuff. And the kicker for me is we would never let our students get away with it. Never. None of our students could get away with this. No way any of us would allow our students to get away with this. You know, your students make an emotionally alluring claim, support it with no evidence, dismiss any counterassertions with a flippant, you don't get it, or okay, boomer, and then say, well, that's my experience. Never. No chance, no way any of our students could get away with that. Again. The fluff creators are not going away. The dopamine hit and the external validation that comes from all the attention, the likes, the retweets is way too alluring. So it's up to us to be more thoughtful consumers of content. Think twice before you like or retweet something. As someone personally who creates content like myself, I know that's a risky thing for me to say. And you can't always have a full reference list in a 280 character tweet. I get that. But before you get too drawn in by a cute little graphic or the cult of personality, think about what oxygen you might be providing to the fluff. Think about what fluff you might be fueling, if you will. Content creators, we need to demand more of ourselves than just providing an onslaught of fluff to go viral. Whether through posts on social media, in a workshop, keynotes, etc., we have to be tougher on ourselves to ensure that there is substance behind what we are saying if we're talking about effective practices. And again, there are some debates in the field that are meant to be had, and that's good. Those are healthy. But there needs to be some substance behind it. It doesn't have to be a textbook-style citation or you know, a, a clinical research-type paper. But how about a quote or two from the research? That might be nice. Throw in there educators generally need to demand more of content creators. Don't just like or retweet or forward things before you ask whether the claim is research vetted. And again, teaching is not an exact science, so there are many ways to be effective, and the debate of those ideas is important, as I just said. So there can be multiple interpretations of the research, and there are certainly implementation choices and contextual nuances to be had. I have no issue there but there should be some substance or grounding, don't you think? Just something? Ask for it if it's not there. And finally, educators need to demand more from themselves. Fluff is fluff, substance is substance, and neither the two shall meet. Let's be a little bit more thoughtful about how we consume the assertion so many make in the public sphere. Again, I know I sound cranky, <laughs> and, and maybe even I'm part of the problem. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I want to expand the listening audience and try to create things that uh, grow this podcast. But I worry sometimes that the pathway to doing that is to fluff it up a bit more, which, honestly, I will likely never do, as I'd have to live with myself and be able to look myself in the mirror so here's your new slogan going forward, okay? Your new slogan. You ready for it? <laughs> Say no to the fluff that gets passed off as stuff.
1: This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash Now let's get back to the episode.
0: Here today for the interview is Dr. Monica Burns. Monica is a former New York City public school teacher and currently an ed tech and uh, curriculum consultant She is also the author of EdTech Essentials, which was published in 2021 by ASCD. Monica works with schools and organizations around the world to support them with the thoughtful integration of technology, and she is also the host of the Easy EdTech podcast. Now, of course, some might say Easy EdTech is a paradox, but Mm -hmm. that is exactly why we've invited Monica here today. So Monica, I want to welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm excited to have you here. Happy New Year, by the way. Um, I'm a recent subscriber to your podcast, and uh, I, I think it's great, um, both both content and delivery. So I'm really looking forward to digging into um, our topic today because tech edtech is not something we've talked a lot about on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. But before we do that, let's start with your journey um, as an educator. Before we dig into the substance, the content of our conversation the arc of your career, walk us through the journey and and maybe some of the impact points of that journey that led you to becoming an ed tech expert here in 2022.
1: Absolutely. Well, I started my education career, my undergraduate degree was in elementary education and jumped right into the classroom uh, teaching in New York City public schools in a very traditional public school, chalk and a chalkboard, overhead projector, all of those great things. And then transitioned, that school transitioned into a magnet school. So we became a magnet school for environmental stewardship. That was our theme. So I'll sometimes, I was just in Wisconsin in December uh, talking to educators there and showing pictures of the compost bin on one side of my classroom and the iPad cart you know, on the other side of the mm-hmm. classroom. I, I love those visuals next to each other to just talk about the balance right around mm-hmm. using digital tools. And so we became a one-to-one school. iPads were our device of choice. And that was you know, more than 10 years ago. So really early on with one-to-one, not the first school, by any means uh, but where I was in New York City not a lot of schools were one-to-one, not a lot with iPad. And the folks at Apple Education in New York had asked me to, you know, come down one day after school and talk to some teachers about what I was doing in my classroom. And I came and showed up and it ended up being, you know, a couple hundred (laughs) teachers where I do not have any background, you know, in public speaking experience, at least not at that point, um, 2011-ish or so. And, you know, that's when, you know, I was able to just start sharing and people started asking, you know, where can we follow? Do you have a blog, right? And all things I didn't have answers to, right? All questions I didn't quite have answers to because I was kind of in my own little world, right? In my classroom at a wonderful school with wonderful colleagues um, who I could talk to and chat with. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really when my blog started. So this year actually is coming up on 10 years of Mm -hmm. classtechtips.com, three years of the Easy Ed Tech podcast. Uh, this spring and after A few years of staying in that one-to-one environment, I left the classroom, so now about half of my work is professional development, Mm -hmm. working with educators, used to be a lot more on the road, now a lot more virtual, so whether it's schools or districts or conferences or organizations that serve teachers, and then the other half of my work is writing around ed tech. so I've got a few publications like EdTech Essentials that you mentioned, a blog, of course, Mm -hmm. and then some partnerships and works that i do with different ed tech companies Mm -hmm. so that's really been kind of the journey to where you know we're sitting here today with kind of a a phone call me ready to share and talk about this topic that i was really passionate about and along the way um, going back to school getting my doctorate writing a lot about ed tech and spending time in lots of other educators classrooms um, both face-to-face and virtually of course
0: So many similarities in stories about, you know, people who become, you know, quote, unquote, experts in areas, it always seems to start so organically that we try some things, we start introducing things. We share what we're doing. People start asking us questions, and it kind of grows organically, doesn't it? And then here you are, ten years later. It's almost like it's not as if you decided ten years ago, no, "I'm going I mean, to be an expert." It just kind of unfolds one step at a time, for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's interesting, just so many people that I talk to share that similarity, uh, in in terms of their story and how how it kind of unfolds for them. Okay, I want to start with. What I feel is a big overarching question. and so i'm I'm coming in hot on this question uh, mm-hmm. because I'm finding it, I'm getting to a point where there is a kind of a level of frustration here yeah. in twenty twenty two and i might asking might be asking this question in a bit of a blunt maybe somewhat inartful way but uh, you know i wouldn't consider myself ahead of the curve when it comes to technology by any stretch there was a point where i felt that way maybe 20 years ago but i think i am not there but i i probably say i'm in the upper half of uh, you know of people but nowhere near the top for sure but at what point does it become professionally negligent for educators to ignore tech? I still hear, in, even now in 2022, oh, you know, I don't do tech. I, You know, I'm old school. And, and, and if you, you know, look, if you need help learning tech, then, of course, there's people like yourself and others mm-hmm. out there who can often help them. Uh, look, no problem. If you need help, if the will is there, then the skill can be taught. But I think a lot of my frustration comes from the fact that there are people who just kind of hold out and don't invest in as as some kind of badge of honor this is you know I'm holding out from technology because I'm old school and they almost hold it up as a badge of honor Now I know this is a long question but from your perspective are we at a point in education where tech just be should be considered essential and that educators who are just resisting it from an unwillingness to invest in technology is there a level of negligence there as educators in 2022?
1: So I think, you know, we're at a point, and I would have said this two years ago, you know, if we were January 2020, right, Mm -hmm. chatting about this, that there are places and all of the things we do in education to use technology to do things better, or to do things in a more efficient way, in a more authentic way, and in a way that really takes into the account what students need in order to be successful, competent, ready for whatever is in front of them. And I'm confident that I would have said, right, that same sort of sentence to you two years ago. Right. And now, you know, January 2022, in a situation that looks very different after two years that have been very unexpected, you know, one of the things that I've heard many people say that, you know, I agree with here is that, you know, this is an acceleration, right? We knew that we would be at a point where there need to be some level of proficiency in different digital spaces with digital tools and we just accelerated that and you can have the argument of how much that accelerated right um, but we definitely jumped fast right into a world that we probably could have said you know the folks like you mentioned who were very hesitant or resistant probably would have acknowledged we were headed in that direction but maybe thought we had more time right and so when it comes to working with folks who are very dismissive right, of technology or mm-hmm. who are holding on to certain practices, you know, I acknowledge that there's a level of nostalgia there, right? There may be things that have always felt like they're working really well, mm-hmm. but really when you take a step back and you say, was this, is this working really well for everyone? Right. Am I reaching everyone and making sure that they have what they need in order to be successful moving forward? And I think it's really hard to make an argument across disciplines, right, looking really widely that you can truly prepare students for their future without having some level of interaction with digital tools and proficiency building with technology and that can look very very different in every Mm -hmm. classroom right so if you are in a situation where you traditionally are working really hands-on right with different tools with different resources right it doesn't mean that that's the only part of what a student would need to do if they even went into that industry right Mm -hmm. they're going to need to understand how to correspond in digital spaces you have a student who is building a business that might primarily rely on non-digital things they're still going to need to communicate in those spaces talk to clients tell the story of their work right be able to run through finances or find someone even who's going to be able to have that capacity even if they're not doing all the excel building out for their small business so i think to say that there's a zero or 100 right is it's a false choice to say that it has to be one or the other but i do think there's some room and you might find that in one particular uh, discipline or content area you're going to be a little bit heavier on that scale but to say that it's all or nothing, right, in any subject area, I just think is a really hard argument for someone to make. So, you know, I'm hesitant to work to use the word, you know, negligent broadly right but when you're having specific conversations with educators and I definitely talk to a lot of folks who are are hesitant and again you know now and in the past I think it's really about finding those stories and listening and hearing what's happening in their classroom because there's often ways right we all don't know what we don't know right. and sometimes you just have to have that conversation that says oh I didn't even know that was possible or now that you say right. that and you know of course it comes in with some of the things you mentioned of having the best intentions, right? If you're coming right, from a place right. of growth and and you're open and willing to have those conversations, and I think there's a lot of movement that can take place.
0: Right, absolutely, and and certainly, uh, you know, I was purposefully trying to be a bit provocative mm-hmm. with the question, and and the and the point about negligence for me is the unwillingness. You you can't. You're absolutely right that you don't know what you don't know, but it's the unwillingness. It's, you know, as you were responding there, it makes me think about this idea of of often people will say we need to meet our students where they are we need to be a learner responsive Mm -hmm. teacher it's pretty hard to say that you're a learner responsive and then at the same time simultaneously reject technology because our students now live in in the technological world and and whatever judgment one might place upon whether it's social media or any other platforms, that is where they are, and and the negligence for me comes with the unwillingness, and certainly, we can't blame them for that. And I the other the other point is hard to imagine. Um, January of twenty twenty, you know, pre pandemic, uh, it is incredible to think about. But but I think you're spot on, and we see this in so many areas. I see it certainly in the area I work in, in assessment and grading is the conversations that were long overdue were certainly accelerated in the spring of 2020 as well. Um, but but again, to the other side of the point for teachers, it's not, for me, the, the will. The will is something I think we're being negligent on, but at the same time, in defense of teachers. Um, we obviously, in recent years, have seen a massive tech explosion in education. So as much as I can sort of look to that negligence side. I can't blame teachers and administrators for feeling completely overwhelmed with the onslaught of technological options. You know, you go to any conference or you look on any website, there's four and a half thousand products that are perfect for your classroom. So I guess my question in defense of teachers and, and, and those who are maybe have the, the will, but maybe they don't understand how to move forward Um where do they start? Like, how do they start? How can I cut through some of the tech noise, if you will, Mm -hmm. and figure out where to begin? If I'm someone who wants to incorporate technology into my teaching, into my classroom experiences for my students, where do I begin?
1: there is just so much out there, right? And Mm -hmm. thinking back even to spring of 2020, I'm sure your inbox, just like mine, was full of ed tech companies that I connected with at some point, right, over the past however many years with the best of intentions opening up, right, their tools and their resources and all Mm -hmm. the things, right, so that people could jump in and do what they had to do and what was truly, you know, an emergency situation, unexpected Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the great intentions are there, And there's lots of wonderful things out there. And I, you know, I run a blog where I share lots of favorites. I'm Mm -hmm. just, I send out a weekly newsletter, right? That goes out with lots of favorites and updates because I want people to know what's out there and available. But what I don't want is for their tool belt to be so heavy that instead of around their waist, they can't even lift it off the floor because they have too many things in there. And so I was out in in Arizona just um, in December working with a group of educators and doing a presentation that had a number, you know, in the front of it, right? One of those listicle style presentations. Yeah. And it gets people in the door because just like I will click on someone's 40 things you didn't know about the Burger King breakfast menu, if they put, <laughs> put it on Facebook, right? I, yeah. Because I know I'm going to learn something about French toast sticks that I didn't know yesterday, right? Like I, I see mm-hmm. there's a perceived value to that, right? I'm not going to remember all 40 things, but I'm going to use a couple of them. And so I like those presentations because it can reach a nice wide audience Mm -hmm. but i always start them off by saying i want you to push back when i share this formative assessment strategy and then i tell you a tool you can use to achieve that goal Mm -hmm. i want you to say but monica couldn't i also use And yes, that's how I want you thinking about this, right? Like, here's a tool that you could add to your tool belt to accomplish this goal. But if you're using a tool that allows you to give voice feedback already, Mm -hmm. or that makes it easy to organize and color code information when it's sent in, like, that's what you want to stick with. But hopefully you're looking at it through a new lens after our conversation. So there's a lot out there. I will often make recommendations to say, you're going to want to have a tool that does something like this, or Mm -hmm. look out for this feature when you are using a tool that you already have access to and a phrase i started using really at the beginning of this year i think it was it came from one of my early podcast episodes to kick off 2021 i -hmm. guess it was you know so that was one where i started using the phrase embrace your place like if you're being told to use this learning management system if someone picked it for you even though you know that there's something better out there like embrace that place and make sure anything else you're choosing works well within that system. So Mm -hmm. don't force it, you know, to fit right into that space. Make sure that you're really embracing this place where you have Most likely professional development support at your school already for usage. Mm -hmm. You have people in your building you can talk to about how things work or ideas that they might have. And then you can bring in these other pieces using that as your hub because you're absolutely right. There's a lot out there and it's really about the curation and picking what's going to be best for a particular moment.
0: Right. Yeah. I think you're right about the numbers, right? We like those uh, seven ways, uh, 12 ways, eight ways.
1: I love them. Right. (laughs) But
0: (laughs) I want to know what the 40 things about the Burger King breakfast. I'm curious now. I'm going to (laughs) have to dig into that. I think that I think your point, though, at the end there leads me to the next question. And the question is about that curation, because I think sometimes we get enamored with technology. I remember, you know, over a decade ago when I was working in a central office position, and there was the big push for, uh, one-to-one laptops and and interactive smart boards and things like that I have always been in the mindset that it really isn't about the tech itself that the tech you know if the tech just makes your lecture look you know cooler and more colorful that you really aren't making much of a difference so um, and we're not making maximizing it's just a toy then right we're not maximizing its impact so am I right to say that the goal for any sort of technology whether it's an app or a device, is really to lead to pedagogical enhancement. That's really what we're, am I right about that? And if I am, then maybe talk a little bit about how we can make sure that what we choose, what we curate is actually going to lead to more effective instruction.
1: I absolutely agree with you in that statement. And, you know, I have the new book from ASCD that came out in mm-hmm. 2021, EdTech Essentials. But before that, my first publication with them was called Tasks Before Apps, mm-hmm. really placing that learning front and center, using that as your guiding light, as you're making decisions about technology use in a classroom setting. Because we've all been there on an expo hall floor, right? You mentioned conferences mm-hmm. earlier, like where everyone is in one Corner looking at one thing, and is it bright and shiny, or is it really going to change the way that we're thinking about teaching and learning and thoughtful Mm -hmm. instruction or thoughtful and strategic fill in the blank, right? For your practice, there. So, coming back to the why, I think is really crucial. Doesn't mean we can't have bright and shiny and fun things happening, right? It's just a matter Mm -hmm. of anchoring it in what our goals are. So, really saying to ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish here? why are we using this tool, right? And that can really be a many fold, right? Answer of, well, we're using this to publish so the whole world can see, right? Mm -hmm. Or we are using this because my students really need this voice to text to help them build their skills as writers, right? So Mm -hmm. that reason of why could go in a lot of directions, but it's an important conversation starter. If you are Mm -hmm. planning collaboratively with a team, it's a great reflection, right? Moment to say, all right, I like this. The kids are probably going to like this, but why are we using this? And so it absolutely needs to come back to those goals um, as we're making choices, um, regardless of what type of technology. You know, it might not always be the right fit, um, but we want to be thoughtful when we are bringing something into the equation.
0: Yeah, there's always that question about that, that why question, right? The shiny objects, I, you know, in my world around assessment and grading, I often hear teachers say, oh, I love Kahoot, for example. Um, I use Kahoot every day and I'm like, but that's selected response. That is just a multiple choice platform that is not always conducive to the right assessment method. So I think that point about, is it an enhancement? What's my purpose? Why do I need this? How is this going to make me more Mm -hmm. effective as a teacher is is an important one. Um, let's, um, let's maybe finish up here with, um, specific details and listeners. We're not mentioning specific programs as endorsements or anything like that. This is just from Monica's perspective, but I want to finish up maybe, um, going through this a little bit methodically, uh, some recommendations for, for listeners as they think about either introducing some tech into their teaching or thinking about how, how do I increase my sort of pedagogical repertoire, uh, by enhancing what I already do. And maybe take this subject grouping by subject grouping. We're going to kind of cluster some subjects here and and think about what are some of the specific sort of recommendations. Again, these are we're not we're not being paid to endorse these products. Okay. These are just okay. from Monica's perspective. These are products that uh, you think are very effective. So let's start with language based courses. Let's talk okay. about English language arts, social studies, world languages. What are some of your favorite apps or platforms that you think? teachers who teach those subject areas would really benefit from using in terms of both the enhancement as far as meeting students Mm -hmm. technologically, but also that pedagogical impact?
1: Yeah. So in this category and across categories, but especially here, we talk about ELA, social studies, world languages. I love open-ended creation tools, something Mm -hmm. that's a blank canvas that when you get in there, you can typically do the same sort of things. You can record voice, You can sometimes record video or add in pictures. What's great about having a camera tool built into something like this is that kids can work analog or offline and snap pictures of something they did Mm hands-on. So tools that have other media, easy to embed or pull in like a photo search or icon or shapes that they can pull in and the ability to publish, publish. So just a teacher can see a file or a link Or the whole world could see it, right? If audience is an area that you're really focused in on. And there's a bunch of tools that fall into this category. If you're on iPad, Apple Clips or iMovie might be one that you go to. I love Book Creator. I've done some work with their team and really seen them grow from just an iPad app that's popular to one that has been Become, you know, Chrome friendly and mm. friendly for different devices. So those tools that have features that give kids an opportunity to choose their own adventure, tell a story, are ones that I go to. Buncee is another one that falls into that category. Adobe Creative Cloud Express for Education. I love the Spark tools, which was the old version. And I've done some work with them when I was in the Spark iteration, and mm. I'm excited to see some of those changes. So those choose your own adventure blank canvas kind of tools that a teacher can come back to multiple times over the school year and can use maybe even in a different content area um, are ones that I love for language-based courses.
0: Mm -hmm. When you talk about voice options uh, for language-based courses, are you talking about voice where student records for teacher or is it also teacher for student? Are you looking at a kind of reciprocal use of those voice features or is it just one way?
1: yeah it can absolutely be two ways so if you think of a student first as kind of the publisher like the final product then absolutely letting them record their voice so that someone can hear their work and and get a view of their learning through mm-hmm. audio but there's tools that are great for feedback in language arts courses where you can record your voice as audio feedback leave that little button that's right on there um, those are ones that have changed i think some of the way we think about even feedback and right. and when I talk about them or, or talk about formative assessment and technology, I'll sometimes joke that, you know, we've all gotten a text message from a friend or family member where we're not sure if they're joking or if they're mad at us or if it was a little snarky or, or what the sound was behind their text yeah. to you, right? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And, and a lot of times that's probably us projecting, right? Just like a student who might submit an essay for feedback, not feeling super confident, Right. Their interpretation of a comment on the Google Doc is going to be different than maybe Mm -hmm. if they heard the enthusiasm in someone's voice. So, you know, there's just a lot that can happen there throughout the process in an ELA classroom that's really transformed with these different tools.
0: Right. It, it um. You made me think of feedback, of course, in, in my world around assessment, informative sure. assessment, the use of feedback. But of course, listeners, I would recommend you set a timer because it's very easy to be very long-winded with voice applications and wow. overwhelm the student with your 10-minute sort of monologue about, about their, <laughs> their assignment. So, so be careful mm-hmm. of that. I, I suppose that's what emojis are for uh, in texting. Yeah. So people understand exactly what was meant otherwise we need a sarcasm font as many have said right. <laughs> to understand sarcasm i'm going to come back to that emoji because in a recent uh, episode of your podcast you talked about mm-hmm. use of emojis i want to come back to that momentarily but let's talk about stem what are some of your favorite um, apps platforms for stem
1: so there's a lot of different resources out there when it comes to some of the individual activities students might participate in a stem classroom and if you mm-hmm. have a background in using Microsoft tools, even something like Excel right? a lot has changed from right when you and I might have first encountered those tools in different settings, right? So Mm -hmm. I would say go back to some of these classic, if you will, tools and take a peek at what they've done. Microsoft education has a lot of STEM resources too um, that are are really useful there. But what I would encourage as well when it comes to sharing different activities is to think creatively about what kids can do to show their learning. So shifting from a traditional lab report that might be very writing heavy which could be a struggle for a student who's really passionate about science, but is building, right, their ELA skills. Well, maybe in the STEM classroom for that lab report, you're introducing them to a podcasting tool like Soundtrap or GarageBand and having them interview an expert or publish their lab report in an audio format. Not to say that the writing piece isn't important, but building capacity, right, on confidence, right, along that way. So I would say for STEM taking a look at some specific tools that might feel traditional and looking at ways that they have grown. So going to your specific tool belt in your discipline, but then thinking about alternative assessment options for a more authentic product um, that might mirror some of the content students consume.
0: Yeah, it, it, um, You know the the there's so much overlap and i want to make sure that listeners understand that certainly with stem there are times where those open-ended um you know more conducive to writing kinds of apps are applicable but I, i love the idea of being able to to specialize i also appreciate you saying when you and i encountered those programs because I'm definitely a lot older than you are. So I probably, I probably encountered Excel long before you did Monica, but I appreciate it. I'll take it. Uh, (laughs) But uh, let's, let's finish up here. Uh, I want to come back to those emojis, but, but I want to talk about those specialty areas. What about uh, Mm -hmm. subjects like physical education or you mentioned garage band. So that's obviously very conducive for music, but music, art, uh, performing arts, uh, physical education, classes that are more specialty areas, what are some of your favorite uh, platforms, apps, things like that?
1: So when it comes to consumption of content or introducing students to something new, especially in the disciplines, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of great YouTube channels and specific content that go along. So if you're in a PE classroom talking about a student's golf swing, right, for example, not only can you pull up a quick video on YouTube and talk Mm -hmm. about different swings from professional athletes, but you can also use apps to film write all over your tablet right and show what a student might want to switch or change and it may feel like a broadcast you know sports news a type of piece but these are readily accessible apps that fall into those categories Art classroom, same thing, being able to pull up a performance or a monologue or something that you know students can watch as an exemplar that might have been more challenging in the past. The quality, the ease, the efficiency of being able to do that is huge, right? And some favorite, you know, examples there too, and this would fall even into the music or talking about physical education and different kind of content pieces. I love TED-Ed. So TED Talks are great, but TED Ed, right. which they have their own YouTube channel, their own ed.ted.com is mm-hmm. an example. I love sharing for specialty areas because right. if there's you know, a little topic, something a little niche, an origin story that's really gonna hook students in who might not have signed up for that class, but mm-hmm. need that extra push to get excited, that's one of my favorite places to go to for quick pieces of information that can right. grab someone's attention.
0: Right. So as we sort of think about these platforms, I'm going to express to you sort of what comes to mind. And you let me know if I'm on the right track with this and try to articulate this for listeners. I'm sort of what I'm hearing you say is that there are two sides to this coin. There is the consumption side, then there's the production side. And in each of those, we'll have some features that are. So, again, knowing what your learning goal is, knowing what the intention of the activity might be which side of that ledger am I on? We know there's a Venn diagram between the two, but which side of the ledger? Am I on the right track with thinking that first point?
1: Yeah, and I think that you know when we're able to give students high quality pieces Mm -hmm. of resources to consume, we're able to talk through our own choices and vetting. Like, I know Mm -hmm. this is a great example because, or did you notice how this creator did this? Mm -hmm. It really sets them up for success as consumers. You know, we're not going to ask a student to make a podcast if we're not sharing a podcast with them to listen to. Right. So Mm -hmm. the same thing can be flipped to say, if you put kids behind the camera, if you will, or as a creator role, they're going to become more diligent consumers and evaluators of content when they say, how did they do that? Or can Mm -hmm. I trust this? Or I know that's a quick trick for this, right? So there's Mm -hmm. just a lot of value from wearing both of those hats. Right. Just like you said, there's an overlap on what your goals might be. And I don't think it's a one or the other, right? But Mm -hmm. introducing both of those strategically to students.
0: Yeah, even just looking at it and consuming it and then thinking about what was in the mindset of the creator, what were they thinking about Mm -hmm. as they go with that? Would you also be of the mindset, you know, the parallel to this is in sports where they often advise coaches to, choose a few drills that kind of get home so that you're not constantly changing the platform or you're not changing the drills but you teach the drill and then you refine the skill would you be of the same mindset with tech to say find a handful of platforms or apps Mm -hmm. that are really conducive to what you're doing and get good at that refine that you don't have to do it all you don't have to do everything you just find a few that really help enhance the the learning experience for, for students and go deep with them would you would you be of that mindset as well yeah yeah.
1: Quality over quantity here, for sure. And there's a yeah. lot of reasons for that. And you mentioned, right, a few there, right, that are mm-hmm. front of mind for me, right? We're saving time when it comes to onboarding. We're having a better experience where kids are com feeling confident within a space, know what to do. They're not questioning things or, and I don't mean asking questions, but they're not questioning Mm -hmm. themselves as they move through if they're doing things correctly, right. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit deeper. And so I'm always looking for tools that have multiple purposes or multiple use cases that are going to have that depth as opposed to just the surface level. Doesn't mean you might not pull up a YouTube video that might feel a little random. You're never going to go back to that YouTube channel again. It just checks the box for the day. But when Mm we're going deep especially into that creation and production side or assessment routines, the more thoughtful we can be around the long game, um, the better.
0: All right, right. All right. Emojis. I feel like I've overhyped this a little bit in this <laughs> through, <laughs> through the conversation. But I have to say, you know, it was a December episode of your your podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh and, and I found it fascinating because it's something I'd never thought of before. And I think that's part of the wonder of technology is you're introduced right. to things that you aren't maybe not familiar with so i'm just going to give you some space here to talk about you know many would not connect the dots between you emojis which seem most of the time is a fun part of our texting routines and learning so what's in in maybe just a couple of minutes here what is the best way or the most effective way to incorporate emojis into teaching and learning
1: Yes. And I will tell you that I, you know, was not someone who was using emojis from the very first time it <laughs> popped up on my keyboard. You know, I had an eye roll about it, right? If someone sent it to me and just thought yeah. they were kind of cheesy before I'm just, you know, jumped right in with everyone else, I guess. Right. And so yeah. that podcast, that episode of my Easy Ed Tech podcast was really around ways to use emojis that might surprise you. Right. So mm-hmm. things that might not be as evident as you know what you mentioned already about adding into a feedback right or Within a text message to communicate tone, that's on the list, right? Of reasons we might use it for sure. But there's other smaller moments where visual cues on a chart we're sharing with students, Mm -hmm. Um, adding emojis into a folder that we see every day in our Google Drive, right, is going to help us just get to where we need to be, right? So there's a lot that you can do even with coding if you're giving feedback, right? Maybe there's a few different emojis, five that you stick with all year, right, in your course correspondence with students. So kids see it, they know it, and they move on, right, to what they have, what action they have to take. So, you know, there's so many ways that you can use them in um, different content areas, maybe having students retell a story in just five emojis. I love the creativity that comes alive when there's constraints to something like that, too. You know, so there's just a lot of ways to bring it in that might not be so obvious uh, that once they're in your practice, they might seem like a a no-brainer.
0: Yeah. Maybe two that we don't want to use for feedback the shrugged shoulders and right. uh, and maybe, <laughs> or maybe the, face yeah, yeah, the hand to the face, right? Or whatever. It's like, <laughs> <we> <laughs> might want to leave those out of our repertoire for exactly. giving kids yeah. feedback. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about, or this is completely off base. Um, right. Can I ask you about podcasts too before we jump yeah. into those last two questions? Um, and again, just as we finish up here, just briefly. What is the most effect? Because I hear so many teachers talking now, and I don't have any experience with this, but I hear so many teachers online talking about how they utilize podcasts in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most effective ways that you've seen teachers incorporate, not not as consumers, but as producers? That's the side I want to talk about. What are some of the ways that you've seen podcasts get incorporated into student experiences where they are the producers of that?
1: So that can mean a lot of things when sure. someone says, right, or, or is bringing in podcasting and creation. It could be short form audio mm-hmm. where students are posting a quick little piece of information or giving a synopsis of something that they've read. So for a quick entry, there's a couple tools that make it a little bit easier to set up kids for success. Padlet is one mm-hmm. where if you've used Padlet before, it's kind of known for putting sticky notes on the page, but kids can leave audio notes. So when we talk mm-hmm. about podcasting with students, it could be as simple as gathering some audio notes, they have 30 seconds or less to make a case for something or to share the hook for their persuasive writing that they're working on. For longer form pieces, it could include interviews. These are great to put side by side in a project-based learning environment where you might Mm -hmm. interview experts as part of your research, Right, turning that into a podcast. It might not be the final product in the vision of what you might traditionally think of as PBL, but you could have those as publishing points along the way. Um, Having students act something out, right? Or think about the type of music that goes along with a scene that they're writing. So if they've written a personal narrative, there may be moments where something needs to happen in the background, right? Or a sound effect is really gonna communicate the Mm -hmm. tone in a way that will help them become a stronger writer as they think about what words they need to use to make that happen. So Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of deep conversations that can happen throughout the production process. There's some natural connections like interviews with experts or bringing writing to life that are a really great way to start. But I would encourage anyone who's thinking about that um, as a production piece to, you know, take a look at what is out there for student consumers as a great starting point. Mm -hmm. Because I'm confident if you share examples with your students, they'll come back to you with ways they want to try. Right. That medium that's going to be meaningful for them, too.
0: We are. As the expression goes, we are only limited by our imagination and what is possible. Uh, it's if, if you think it's possible, it probably is when it comes to the incorporation of technology into teaching and learning. Uh, I, I I feel like I could talk to you for another four hours about the possibilities, and we probably would not have a lot of overlap in terms of what, what is possible. But as we finish up today, Monica, I have two questions as I finish inter- every interview. Um, these are two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And the first one, uh, you can take this in any direction uh, that you wish, uh, but educationally speaking, Uh, what keeps you up at night
1: well to make an ed tech connection for this question you know we've heard the term digital divide used a lot not recently but for a while now and in the Mm -hmm. past that was really taken to think about access to physical devices right what does that look like in terms of who has what and so one area of concern that i think is coming up more and more in conversations is not just the do I have that device, but what's happening. So that mm-hmm. shift from the quantity of what's out there to the quality of experiences is definitely something that I think a lot about, right? How to support people to have higher quality experiences, to choose when to use something, to choose when to put it aside. Um, those are definitely areas that I think a lot about.
0: Right, and, and acutely, as we talked about this earlier, um, with the onset of the pandemic, uh, certainly um, access and and certainly quality of experience was was at the forefront of so many schools and school districts' uh, minds as things shifted dramatically in, in the uh, spring of 2020. Uh, last question as we finish up today, uh, and this is a question about success and obviously as someone who has been very successful and is very successful and will continue to be very successful. Uh, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? Monica, how would you answer them?
1: So success to me is all about impact, right? Am I mm-hmm. having the impact that I think is important, right? That mission driven connection to my work is is really essential. So when I think of defining success, it really comes down to that: who has been impacted by my mm-hmm. time and, and my work, and and what I'm excited to share.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, I think impact. Anytime we make an impact, we uh, a positive impact is is. Always uh, a great way to define success for sure. Listeners, you definitely should follow Monica either on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is the same. It's at Class Tech Tips. Uh, you can also find Monica on Pinterest and LinkedIn. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes for all of those um, social media platforms and handles as well. Uh, please check out Monica's website, www.ClassTechTips.com where you're going to find a ton of great stuff. There's uh, Monica's blog is there. Um, and certainly ways to connect with Monica should you wish to work with her more extensively. Uh, Monica, this was fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: In Assessment Corner this week, rather than talk about a specific strategy or idea, I wanna provide you with a simple question that can help guide some of your assessment decisions and let you know whether you are on or off point. It's a simple question, And it's one I use constantly in workshops and presentations and I ask participants to consider. So this is the question. Would you accept that practice if it were part of your performance appraisal in your professional life? Now upon close examination, one can see that there are several things we could inadvertently or intentionally do in assessment and grading with or to our students that we actually wouldn't accept If that very same practice were part of our professional lives. Teachers, if your principal employed some of these practices you would cry foul and principals you would do the same if the superintendent did. So as an exercise just ask yourself if you would think that practice fair if it were being done to you as opposed to being done by you. Now I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list But I want to give you three examples to sort of walk you through this process. I'm going to speak to these examples within the teacher-principal dynamic. But I know it's equally applicable within the superintendent-principal dynamic, etc. So any kind of performance appraisal. Okay, so here's one example. Unclear performance criteria. Imagine heading into your performance appraisal with no criteria. Principal meets with you. And says it's time for your evaluation or growth plan meetings or whatever mechanism might be articulated in contract or whatever the process is in your your school division. Principal says, okay, it's time for your performance appraisal, so I'll be observing your class a few times. We'll meet, we'll have conversations. Again, don't get caught up in the specific mechanics here because I know every district has a different process. Okay, it's time to meet, time to, to go through your performance appraisal, et cetera. And you ask the principal, okay, so what's the criteria? And the principal says back to you, listen, I'm an experienced administrator, and I've observed hundreds of teachers. I know good teaching when I see it. You just worry about teaching to the best of your ability, and I'll let you know how you're doing after the fact. Does that sound absurd? Well, it is except that's what happens in some classrooms. Again, I'm not saying most, I'm not even saying many, but it's naive to say it never happens. Students are given an assignment, but it's not clear what the success criteria is, so they embark blindly into this experience not really knowing what success looks like. You would not accept that in your professional life, so why should your students have that experience? And spare me the, uh, I don't like articulating criteria or Tom, I don't like using rubrics because I don't want to limit my students' creativity or box them in. First, if your rubrics limit students, then that's an implementation error. And the idea that there's some higher cause achieved by withholding criteria is performative and is honestly a lame attempt to sound smart. I, I honestly have no patience for that kind of crap. If your rubric's restrict or limit creativity or the options that your students have, then the rubric has been built poorly. As I've said many times and many of you heard me say before, rubrics should describe quality, not prescribe output. So there should be absolutely no limitations on students when you describe quality and the student's demonstration matches that level of quality. The idea of keeping criteria hidden is ridiculous. Okay, that's the first one. Number two, these aren't ranked or anything like that, but just a second example, I should say. The notion of going above and beyond. You see this a lot when people create their grading scales and they talk about exceeds the expectations. Now for this, it is critical to separate the notion of being assessed with what you are interested in professionally, like from from what you might be internally curious about. I'm going to talk specifically about your performance appraisal here, not things that you might initiate. So we can go above and beyond in any aspect of our own professional lives, but I'm talking about the situation with the principal. So let's just assume for a minute that the criteria actually has been shared with you. And again, imagine your principal saying this to you. Now, the top level you can be rated or assessed on during this performance appraisal is whether you go above and beyond. And you ask the principal, well, what does that mean? And the principal says, well, it's really hard to say. There are just so many ways you might be able to go above and beyond. I'll know it when I see it. Again, there is exactly a 0% chance that you would accept this in your professional life. First, you'd be thinking to yourself, what do you mean? I have to do more than my job? What exactly does that mean? There's no clear definition, that's clearly a problem. And we just talked about the importance of making success criteria. Go above and beyond. Well, what exactly does that mean? And that's part of the problem in schools is we rarely define it clearly. And the idea of I'll know it when I see it, come on. Teaching is a challenging job, it's hard and we should strive for excellence. But the assessor, the appraiser, your boss, et cetera, in this case, your principal, should be able to articulate what excellence looks like. There should be some agreement as to what the criteria is and be able to describe it. So again, we wouldn't accept this in our professional lives. So why is it okay to do it with or for our students? Let's assume a four-level scale. If your performance appraisal came back as a three, your first question to your principal would be, why am I not a four? Imagine then your principal says to you, well, you didn't wow me. What? Nowhere did you ever say I was supposed to wow you. And more importantly, what exactly does wow you mean? You striving for the four is not grubbing. It's not grade grubbing. It's human nature. That's how we all are. When we create this category and you know, in schools and we teach to the three and then have the audacity to suggest to students and parents that they should be happy with or worse, settle for the three. Oh, it's good, it's fine, we're teaching to the three. We're really asking them to counter human nature. If they follow all directions and meet all criteria and then out of nowhere, there is this nebulous you didn't wow me category, then at best it's opaque and at worst it's dishonest. It's not grade grubbing, it's human nature. Okay, one more. Another example where this occurs is allowing one professional aspect to downgrade another. Here's what I mean. Imagine if your performance appraisal took every aspect of your professional life and synthesized it down to one rating or one level. Now we can pretend it might be otherwise, but if this were the case, if this were the system, if you got one singular score level, etc., for your entire performance appraisal, we all know that that rating that you ended up with Would be used as an indicator of your overall effectiveness as a teacher so imagine your principal saying this to you you are an exceptional teacher everything from planning to pedagogy to assessment to intervention all of it is exceptional however i really don't appreciate how vocal and confrontational you are during staff meetings So rather than rating you as a four on your performance scale, I'm going to rate you as a three because I find your conduct at staff meetings less than favorable. You okay with that? You okay that your principal says you are less of a teacher? Not because you are less of a teacher, but because she finds you adversarial and abrasive at staff meetings. Again, zero percent chance you're okay with this. You would say... In response to the principal, you would say, what does my conduct at meetings have to do with how effective I am as a teacher? I don't agree with your assertion in the first place. However, if it were true, shouldn't that be a separate issue handled outside the judgment of my effectiveness as a classroom teacher? No way you'd tolerate it. And yet, and you know where this is going, how many times has poor conduct or behavioral misstep led to a reduction in a student's academic score? I know there are a critical mass of educators who long ago left those punitive distorting practices behind. I know that. And I'm sure there's a disproportionate group of listeners listening right now who have, you know, left those practices behind. Because those who would defend those distorting practices and those punitive practices and those who know what I'm all about wouldn't give this podcast the time of day, right? (laughs) But I can promise you there are still enough educators out there defending those distorting practices, enough to notice. There's enough out there to notice. In some places I go, it's actually still quite significant. For reasons that are often veiled through the noble cause of teaching responsibility and, uh, you know, despite the unequivocal compromise to accuracy that many of those practices have, and the fact that even those that support the notion Not all behavioral missteps are even handled this way. And the fact that not even all aspects of responsibility have been traditionally handled this way, right? We don't reduce kids for all behavioral missteps. No one gets docked for disrespectful behavior. And even inside responsibility, we don't reduce scores for all aspects of responsibility, just certain ones, like late work. Somebody shows up to class without their materials, we don't dock them. That's also being irresponsible. Despite all of these things that we know and understand, many still continue to not only support the practice, but defend it with all their might. Now, these are just three examples. Unclear performance criteria, the idea of going above and beyond, and allowing one professional aspect to downgrade another. I'm certain you can think of others. You're probably thinking of them, and there there are many. Think about auditing all of your assessment and grading practices and routines through the simple question, would you accept this in your professional life? And you may, in fact, find that there are practices that need some adjusting. Now, I don't want to assume anything about anyone. Like, you might nod your head and say, Tom, I'd accept everything I do in my professional life because I've been working on my assessment practices for years. That's great. I love that. That's the way it should be. But still, there might be others where you find there are some adjustments that need to be made or even small tweaks that could make the biggest difference. If your professional performance appraisals include some of these egregious practices right now, there may be nothing you can do about it. So if that is actually the reality, then there's probably nothing you can do about it. But it still doesn't mean you accept it. You might not be able to change it, but you don't accept it so if you wouldn't accept it even just emotionally if you wouldn't accept it in your own professional life then why on earth is it okay to do this with or to our students i'll answer for you it's not All right, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also email the podcast with your questions from Assessment Corner, but any suggestions you have, anything like that, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be educator and author Heather Lyon. Heather is the author of two books on student engagement, so that is, of course, going to be the focus of our conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but you can also do that on Spotify now too. So if you listen to the podcast on Spotify, a rating there would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or even on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.